Chapter Six of This Crowded Earth by Robert Bloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. This Crowded Earth by Robert Bloch. Chapter Six. Harry Collins, 2012. Harry crouched behind the boulders, propping the rifle up between the rocks, and adjusted the telescopic sights. The distant doorway sprang into sharp focus. Grunting with satisfaction, he settled down to his vigil. The rifle barrel had been dulled down against detection by reflection, and Harry's dark glasses protected him against the glare of the morning sun. He might have to wait several hours now, but he didn't care. It had taken him twelve years to come this far, and he was willing to wait a little while longer. Twelve years. Was it really that long? A mirror might have answered him. A mirror might have shown him the harsh features of a man of forty-two. But Harry needed no mirror. He could remember the past dozen years only too easily, though they had not been easy years. Surviving the river was only the beginning. Animal strength carried him through that ordeal. But he emerged from the river as an animal, a wounded animal, crawling through the brush in arroyo outside the southern Colorado Canyon. And it was animal cunning which had preserved him. He'd wandered several days until he encountered Emil Grizzik in his outfit. By that time he was half-starved and completely delirious. It took a month until he was up and around again. But Emil and the boys had nursed him through. They took turns caring for him in the bunkhouse. Their methods were crude but efficient, and Harry was grateful. Best of all, they asked no questions. Harry's status was that of a hunted fugitive without a vocational apt record or rating. The authorities or any prospective employers would inquire into these things, but Emil Grizzik never seemed curious. By the time Harry was up and around again, he'd been accepted as one of the bunch. He told them his name was Harry Sanders, and that was enough. Two months after they found him, he'd signed on with Emil Grizzik and found a new role in life. Harry Collins, advertising copywriter, had become Harry Sanders' working cowhand. There was surprisingly little difficulty. Grizzik had absentee employers who weren't interested in their foreman's methods just as long as he recruited his own wranglers for the Bar B Ranch. Nobody demanded to see apt cards or insisted on making out the formal work reports and the pay was in cash. Cowhands were hard to come by these days and it was an unspoken premise that the men taking on such jobs would be vagrants, migratory workers, fugitives from justice and injustice. A generation or so ago they might have become tramps. But the last of the hobos had vanished along with the last of the freight trains. Once the derelicts haunted the canyons of the big cities, today there was no place for them there, so they fled to the canyons of the west. Harry had found himself a new niche, and no questions asked. Oddly enough, he fitted in. The outdoor life agreed with him, and in a matter of months he was a passable cowpoke. Within a year he was one of Grizzik's top hands. He learned to ride a bucking jeep with the best of them and he could spot, single out, and stun a deer in forty seconds flat, then use his electronic brander on it and have the critter back on its feet in just under a minute. Work was no problem, and neither was recreation. The bunkhouse offered crude but adequate facilities for living. Old-fashioned air conditioning and an antique infrared broiler seemed good enough for roughing it, and Cookie at least turned out real man-sized meals. Eating genuine beef and honest-to-goodness baked bread was a treat and so was having the luxury of all that space in the sleeping quarters. Harry thrived on it. And some of the other hands were interesting companions, 
True, they were renegades and mavericks, but they were each of them unique and individual, and Harry enjoyed listening to them fan the breeze during the long nights. There was Big Phil, who was pushing sixty now. You'd never know it, not unless you got him to talking about the old days when he'd been a boy in Detroit. His daddy had been one of the last of the Union men, back in the days of what they used to call the Organized Labor Movement. He could tell you about wage-hour agreements, and the Railroad Brotherhood, and contract negotiations almost as if he knew of these things through personal experience. He even remembered the Democratic Party. Phil got out when the government took over and set up vocational apt and industrial supervision. That's when he drifted west. Tom Lowry's family had been military. He claimed to have been a member of the last graduating class ever to leave West Point. When the armament race ended, his prospects of a career vanished, and he settled down as a guard at Canaveral. Finally, he'd headed for the open country. Bassett was the scholar of the outfit. He could sit around and quote old-time book authors by the hour, classic writers like Prather and Spillane. In another age, he might have been a college professor or even a football coach. He had an aptitude for the arts. And there was Lobo, the misogynist, who had fled a wife and eleven children back in Monterey and Januski, who used to be mixed up with one of those odd religious cults out on the coast. He bragged he'd been one of the big daddy-o's in the beat generationists, and he argued with Bassett about some old-time evangelist named Kerouac. Best of all, though, Harry liked talking to Nick Kendrick. Nick's hobby was music, and he treasured his second-hand stereophonic unit and collection of tapes. He, too, was a classicist in his way and there was many a long winter night when Harry sat there listening to ancient folk songs. The quaint atonalities of progressive jazz and the childishly frantic rhythms of cool sounds were somehow soothing and reassuring in their reminder of a simpler heritage from a simpler age. But above all these men were wranglers, and they took a peculiar pride in the traditions of their own calling. There wasn't a one of them who wouldn't spend hours mulling over the lure of the range and the prairie. They knew the great names from the great days. Eugene Autry, Wyatt Earp, the legendary Thomas Mix, Dale Robertson, Paladin, and all the other men who rode actual horses in the era when the West was really an untamed frontier. And like the cowboys they were, they maintained the customs of other days. Every few months they rode a bucking helicopter into some raw western town. Las Vegas or Reno, or even go over to Palm Springs to drink recklessly in the cocktail lounges, gamble wildly at the slots, or go down the line with some telescreen model on location for outdoor ad backgrounds. There were still half a dozen such sin cities scattered throughout the West. Even the government acknowledged the need of lonely men to blow off steam. And though ag culture officially disapproved of the whole cowhand system, and talked grimly of setting up new and more efficient methods for training personnel and handling the cattle ranges, nothing was ever done. Perhaps the authorities knew that it was a hopeless task. Only the outcasts and iconoclasts had the temperament necessary to survive such loneliness under an open sky. City-dwelling conformists just could not endure the monotony. But even Emil Grizzik's hands marveled at the way Harry lived. He never joined them in their disorderly descent upon these scarlet cities of the plain, and most of the time he didn't even seem to watch the telescreen. If anything, he deliberately avoided all possible contact with civilization. Since he never volunteered any information about his own past, they privately concluded that he was just a psychopathic personality. 
Strong regressive and seclusive tendencies, Bassett explained solemnly. Sure, Nick Kendrick nodded wisely. You mean a moldy fig like creeping meatball, muttered culturalist Januszki. Not being religious fanatics, the others didn't understand the reference. But gradually they came to accept Harry's isolationist ways as the norm, at least for him. And since he never quarreled, never exhibited any signs of dissatisfaction, he was left to his own pattern. Thus it was all the more surprising when that pattern was rudely and abruptly shattered. Harry remembered the occasion well. It was the day the Leff Law was officially upheld by the supremest courts. The whole business came over the telescreens, and there was no way of avoiding it. You couldn't avoid it, because everybody was talking about it, and everybody was watching. Now what do you think, Emil Grizzik demanded. Any woman who wants a baby, she's got to have those shots. They say kids shrink down into nothing, weigh less than two pounds when they're born, and never grow up to be any bigger than midgets. You ask me, the whole thing's plumb loco to say nothing of psychotic. I dunno, this from Big Phil. Reckon they just about have to do something, the way the cities are filling up and all. Tell me every spot in the country except for the plain states here is busting at the seams. Same in Europe, Africa, South America. Running out of space, running out of food all over the world. This man Leffingwell figures on cutting down on size so's to keep the whole shebang going. But why couldn't it be done on a voluntary basis, Bassett demanded. These arbitrary rulings are bound to result in frustrations. And can you imagine what will happen to the individual family constellations? Take a couple that already has two youngsters as of now. Suppose the wife submits to the inoculations for her next child, and it's born with a size mutation. How in the world will that child survive as a midget in a family of giants? There'll be untold damage to the personality. We've heard all those arguments, Tom Lowry cut in. The naturalists have been handing out that line for years. What happens to the new generation of kids? How do we know they won't be mentally defective? How can they adjust? By what right does the government interfere with private lives, personal religious beliefs, all that sort of thing? For over ten years now the debate's been going on. And meanwhile, time is running out. Space is running out. Food is running out. It isn't a question of individual choice anymore. It's a question of group survival. I say the courts are right. We have to go according to law, and back the law up with force of arms if necessary. We get the message, Januski agreed, but something tells me there'll be trouble. Most folks need a midget like they need a monkey on their backs. It's a gasser, partners, said Nick Kendrick. Naturalists don't dig this. They'll fight it all along the line. Everybody's going to be all shook up. It's still a good idea, Lobo insisted. This Dr. Leffingwell, he has made the tests. For years he has given injections and no harm has come. The children are healthy. They survive. They learn in special schools. How do you know? Bassett demanded. Maybe it's all a lot of motivationalist propaganda. We have seen them on the telescreens, no? They could be faking the whole thing. But Leffingwell, he has offered the shots to other governments besides our own. The whole world will adopt them. What if some countries don't? What if our kids become midgets and the Asiatics refuse the inoculations? They won't. They need room even more than we do. No sense arguing, Emil Grizzik concluded. It's the law. You know that. And if you don't like it, join the naturalists. He chuckled. But better hurry. Something tells me there won't be any naturalists around after a couple of years. Now that there's a left law, the government isn't likely to stand for too much criticism. He turned to Harry. What do you think? he asked. Harry shrugged. No comment, he said. 
but the next day he went to Grizzik and demanded his full pay. Leaving? Grizzik muttered. I don't understand. You've been with us almost five years. Where are you going? What you intend to do? What's got into you all of a sudden? Time for a change, Harry told him. I've been saving my money. Don't I know it? Never touched a penny in all this time. Grizzik ran a hand across his chin. Say, if it's a raise you're looking for, I can— No, thanks. It's not that. I've money enough. So you have. Around eighteen, twenty thousand, I reckon, what with the bonuses. Emil Grizzik sighed. Well, if you insist, that's the way it's got to be, I suppose. When you plan on taking off? Just as soon as there's a copter available. Got one going up to Colorado Springs tomorrow morning for the mail. I can get you aboard, give you a check. I'll want my money in cash. Well, now, that isn't so easy. Have to send up for a special draft. Take a week or so. I can wait. All right. And think it over. Maybe you'll decide to change your mind. But Harry didn't change his mind, and ten days later he rode a copter into town, his money belt strapped beneath his safety belt. From Colorado Springs he jetted to Kansas City, and from Kansas City to Memphis C. As long as he had money, nobody asked any questions. He holed up in cheap airtels and waited for developments. It wasn't easy to accustom himself to urbanization again. He had been away from cities for over seven years now, and it might as well have been seven centuries. The overpopulation problem was appalling. The outlawing of private automotive vehicles had helped, and the clearing of the airlanes served a purpose. The widespread increase in the use of atomic power cut the smog somewhat, but the synthetic food was frightful. The crowding intolerable, and the welter of rules and regulations attending the performance of even the simplest human activity passed all his comprehension. Ration cards were in universal use for almost everything. Fortunately for Harry, the black market accepted cash with no embarrassing inquiries. He found that he could survive. But Harry's interest was not in survival. He was bent upon destruction. Surely the naturalists would be organized and planning a way. Back in '98, of course, they'd been an articulate minority without formal unity, an abstract amorphous group akin to the liberals of previous generations. A naturalist could be a Catholic priest, a Unitarian layman, an atheist factory hand, a government employee, a housewife with strong prejudices against governmental controls, a wealthy man who deplored the dangers of growing industrialization, an ag culture worker who dreaded the dwindling of individual rights, an educator who feared widespread employment of social psychology, or almost anyone who opposed the concept of mass man, mass motivated. Naturalists had never formed a single class, a single political party. Surely, however, the enactment of the Leffingwell Law would have united them. Harry knew there was strong opposition, not only on the higher levels, but amongst the general population. People would be afraid of the inoculations. Theologians would condemn the process. Economic interests, real estate owners, and transportation magnates and manufacturers would sense the threat here. They'd sponsor and they'd subsidize their spokesmen, and the naturalists would evolve into an efficient body of opposition. So Harry hoped, and so he thought, until he came out into the cities. Came out into the cities and realized that the very magnitude of mass man mitigated against any attempt to organize him, except as a creature who labored and consumed. Organization springs from discussion and discussion from thought, but who can think in chaos, discuss in delirium, organize in a vacuum? And the common citizen, Harry realized, had seemingly lost the capacity for group action. He remembered his own existence years ago. Either he was lost in a crowd or he was alone at home. Firm friendships were rare and family units survived on the flimsiest of foundations. 
It took too much time and effort to follow the rules, follow the traffic, follow the incessant routines governing even the simplest life pattern in the teeming cities. For leisure, there was the telescreen and the yellow jackets, and serious problems could be referred to the psych in routine checkups. Everybody seemed lost in the crowd these days. Harry discovered that Dr. Manshoff had indeed lied to him. Mental disorders were on the increase. He remembered an old, old book, one of the very first treaties on sociological psychology. The Lonely Crowd, wasn't it? Full of mumbo-jumbo about inner-directed and outer-directed personalities. Well, there was a grain of truth in it all. The crowd and its individual members lived in loneliness, and since you didn't know very many people well enough to talk intimately, you talked to yourself. Since you couldn't get away from physical contact with others whenever you ventured abroad, you stayed inside, except when you had to go to work, had to line up for food rations or supplies, had to wait for hours for your checkups on off days. And staying inside meant being confined to the equivalent of an old-fashioned prison cell. If you weren't married, you lived in solitary. If you were married, you suffered the presence of fellow inmates whose habits became intolerable in time. So you watched the screen more and more, or you increased your quota of sedation, and when that didn't help, you looked for real escape. It was always available to you if you searched long enough. Waiting at the tip of a knife, in the coil of a rope, the muzzle of a gun, you could find it at the very bottom of a bottle of pills, or at the very bottom of the courtyard outside your window. Harry recalled looking for it there himself so many years ago. But now he was looking for something else. He was looking for others who shared not only his viewpoint, but his purposefulness. Where were the naturalists? Harry searched for several years. The press? But there were no naturalists visible on the telescreens. The news and newsmakers reflected a national philosophy adopted many generations ago by the founding fathers of mass communication in their infinite wisdom. What's good for General Motors is good for the country. And according to them, everything happening was good for the country. That was the cardinal precept in the science of autobiology. There were no Arnold Ritchies left any more, and the printed newsines seemed to have vanished. The clergy? Individual churches with congregations in physical attendance seemed difficult to find. Telepreachers still appeared regularly every Sunday, but their scripts, like everyone else's, had been processed in advance. Denominationalism and sectarianism had waned, too. All of these performers seemed very much alike, and that they were vigorous, forthright, inspiring champions of the status quo. The scientists? But the scientists were part of the government, and the government was a one-party system, and the system supported the nation, and the nation supported the scientists. Of course, there were still private laboratories subsidized for industrial purposes, but the men who worked in them seemed singularly disinterested in social problems. In a way, Harry could understand their position. It isn't likely that a dedicated scientist, a man whose specialized research has won him a Nobel Prize for creating a new detergent, will be worldly enough to face unpleasant realities beyond the walls of his antiseptic sanctum. After all, there wasn't a precedent for such isolationism. Did the sainted Betty Crocker ever enlist in any crusades? As for physicians, psychiatrists, and mass psychologists, they were the very ones who formed the hard core of Leffingwell's support. The educators, then. Vocational apt was a part of the government, and the poor pedagogues who had spent generations hacking their way out of the blackboard jungles were only too happy to welcome the notion of a coming millennium when their small charges would be still smaller. Even though formal schooling for most youngsters terminated at fourteen, there was still the problem of overcrowding. 
Telescreening and teletesting techniques were a help, but the problem was essentially a physical one. And Leffingwell was providing a physical solution. Besides, the educators had been themselves educated through vocational apt, and while they and the government fervently upheld the principles of freedom of speech, they had to draw the line somewhere. As everyone knows, freedom of speech does not mean freedom to criticize. Businessmen? Perhaps there were some disgruntled souls in the commercial community whose secret heroes were the oil tycoons of a bygone era, or the old-time stock exchange clan united under the totems of the bull or the bear. But the day of the rugged individualist was long departed. Only the flabby individualist remained. And he had the forms to fill out, and the inspectors to contend with, and the rationing to worry about, and the taxes to meet, and the quotas to fulfill. But in the long run, he managed. The businessman worked for the government, but the government also worked for him. His position was protected. And if the government said the left shots would solve the overpopulation problem without cutting down the number of consumers, well, was that really so bad? Why, in a generation or so, there'd be even more consumers. That meant increased property values, too. It took Harry several years to realize he'd never find naturalists organized for group action. The capacity for group action had vanished as the size of the group had increased. All interests were interdependent. The old civic, fraternal, social, and antisocial societies had no present purpose anymore. And the once familiar rallying points, whether they represented idealistic humanitarianism or crass self-interest, had vanished in the crowd. Patriotism, racialism, unionism had all been lost in a moiling megalopolitanism. There were protests, of course. The mothers objected, some of them. Agculture in particular ran into difficulties with women who revived the quaint custom of going on strike against the left law, and refused to take their shots. But it was all on the individual level and quickly coped with. Government medical authorities met the women at checkup time and demonstrated that the left law had teeth in it, teeth and scalpels. The rebellious women were not subdued, slain, or segregated. They were merely sterilized. Perhaps more would have come of this had their men backed them up. But the men, by and large, were realists. Having a kid was a headache these days. This new business of injections wasn't so bad when you came right down to it. There'd still be youngsters around, and you'd get the same allotment for extra living space. Only the way it worked out, there'd be more room, and the kids would eat less. Pretty good deal. And it wasn't as if the young ones were harmed. Some of them seemed to be a lot smarter than ordinary. Like on some of the big quiz shows, youngsters of eight and nine were winning all those big prizes. Bright little ones. Of course, these must be the ones raised in the first special school the government had set up. They said old Leffingwell, the guy who invented the shots, was running it himself, sort of experimenting to see how this new crop of kids would make out. It was when Harry learned about the school that he knew what he must do. And if nobody else would help him, he'd act on his own. There might not be any help from organized society, but he still had disorganized society to turn to. He spent the next two years and the last of his money finding a way. The pattern of criminality had changed, too, and it was no easy matter to find the assistance he needed. About the only group crime still flourishing was hijacking. It took him a long while to locate a small undercover outfit which operated around St. Louis and arranged to obtain a helicopter and pilot. Getting hold of the rifle was still more difficult. But he managed, and by the time everything was assembled, he'd found out what he needed to know about Dr. Leffingwell and his school. As he suspected, the school was located in the old canyon, right in the same buildings which had once served as experimental units. 
How many youngsters were there, Harry didn't know. Maybe Manshoff was still on the staff, and maybe they'd brought in a whole new staff. These things didn't matter. What mattered was that Leffingwell was on the premises, and a man who knew his way about, a man who worked alone and to a single purpose, could reach him. Thus it was that Harry Collins crouched behind the boulder that bright May morning and waited for Dr. Leffingwell to appear. The helicopter had dropped him at the upper end of the canyon the day before, giving him a chance to reconnoiter and familiarize himself with the terrain once again. He'd located Leffingwell's quarters, even seen the man through one of the lower windows. Harry had no trouble recognizing him. The face was only too familiar from a thousand casts viewed on a thousand screens. Inevitably, sometime today, he'd emerge from the building, and when he did, Harry would be waiting. He shifted behind the rocks and stretched his legs. Twelve years had passed, and now he'd come full circle. The whole business had started here, and here it must end. That was simple justice. And it is justice, Harry told himself. It's not revenge, because there'd be no point to revenge. That was only melodramatic nonsense. He was no Monte Cristo come to wreak vengeance on his cruel oppressors, and he was no madman, no victim of monomaniacal obsession. What he was doing was the result of lengthy and logical consideration. If Harry Collins' long-time fugitive from a government treatment center tried to take his story to the people, he'd be silenced without a hearing. But his story must be heard. There was only one way to arrest the attention of a nation, with the report of a rifle. A bullet in Leffingwell's brain. That was the solution of the problem. Overnight the assassin would become a national figure. They'd undoubtedly try him and undoubtedly condemn him. But first he'd have his day in court. He'd get a chance to speak out. He'd give all the voiceless, unorganized victims of the Left Law a reason for rebellion, and offer them an example. If Leffingwell had to die, it would be in a good cause. Moreover, he deserved to die. Hadn't he killed men, women, infants without mercy? But it's not revenge, Harry repeated, and I know what I'm doing. Maybe I was disturbed before, but I'm sane now. Perfectly logical, perfectly calm, perfectly controlled. Yes. And now his sane, logical, calm, controlled eyes noted that the distant door was opening, and he sighted through the scope and brought his sane, logical, calm, controlled hand up along the barrel to the trigger. He could see the two men emerging, and the shorter, plumper of the two was Leffingwell. He squinted at the high forehead with its receding hairline. It was a perfect target. A little squeezed now, and he knew what would happen. In his sane, logical, calm, controlled mind he could visualize the way the black hole would appear in the center of that forehead, while behind it would be the torn and dripping redness flecked with gray. "'What are you doing?' Harry whirled, staring, staring down at the infant who stood smiling beside him. It was an infant that was obvious enough and implicit in the diminutive stature, the delicate limbs in the oversized head. But infants do not wear the clothing of pre-adolescent boys. They do not enunciate with clarity. They do not stare coolly and knowingly at their elders. They do not say, Why do you want to harm Dr. Leffingwell? Harry gazed into the wide eyes. He couldn't speak. You're sick, aren't you? The child persisted. Let me call the doctor. He can help you. Harry swung the rifle around. I'll give you just ten seconds to clear out of here before I shoot. The child shook his head. Then he took a step forward. You wouldn't hurt me, he said gravely. You're just sick. That's why you talk this way. Harry leveled the rifle. I'm not sick, he muttered. I know what I'm doing. And I know all about you, too. You're one of them, aren't you? One of the first Leffingwell brood of illegitimates. The child took another step forward. I'm not illegitimate, he said. I know who I am. 
I've seen the records. My name is Harry Collins. Somewhere the rifle exploded, the bullet hurtling harmlessly overhead, but Harry didn't hear it. All he could hear exploding in his own brain as he went down into darkness was the sane, logical, calm, controlled voice of his son. End of Chapter 6 of This Crowded Earth by Robert Bloch